What happens when a new speaker presents new content in new communities all the way across Canada, focusing far more extensively on the faces of abortion victims, focusing not only on the what that happens to these victims, but on the who that it's happening to? Find out more in today's episode. Hi folks, my name is Cam. I am the host of the Pro-Life Guys podcast, a show dedicated to equipping you with the tools that you need to have compassionate and compelling conversations about abortion so together we can change minds, save lives, and transform our culture. Thanks a ton for tuning in. Um, it is great to be back in the saddle again and getting regular content out there, which is exciting because interviews are one of my favorite parts of the Pro-Life Guys podcast, getting different perspectives and different ideas in. So it's not just me droning into the microphone week after week. Um, and today's guest is really exciting. I know that before the summer, we had both Jonathan Van Maren and Blaise Elaine, two regular guests on the show, come on and talk a little bit about the Faces of Abortion Tour, um, which is really, really cool. And today I'm going to be joined by a new friend and new colleague, Katura, who is relatively new on staff and also one of our newer speakers. And she and Blaze were the speakers for the Faces of Abortion Tour throughout Eastern Canada. Some of you may know already, we spent a tremendous amount of this past summer excuse me, traveling across Canada, talking to folks, not only on street corners and on doorsteps about the issue of abortion, what it does to the weakest, most vulnerable members of our, our human family, but also giving presentations in churches and community groups across the country, focusing in a new way on the faces of abortion victims and how this was something different than just talking about abortion in general. This isn't um, in the words of, or to paraphrase the words of Dr. Monica Miller, one of the, the incredible pro-life leaders in, um, in the global pro-life community, talking about how abortion victim photography isn't simply about presenting a gory what, but rather um, presenting the very real, very personal who, so I got a fly buzzing around me right now, um, very real who behind the victims themselves. And so I'm really excited to dive into this conversation with Katura. Um, and I, I hope that you enjoy the conversation and Katura's insights as much as I do. Without further ado, here's Katura, my wonderful colleague and friend at CCBR. All right, folks, Katura, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. How are you, Cam? I am living the dream. I am in the middle of rebuilding my deck and trying to catch my breath after a crazy summer of our Faces of Abortion tour. And that's the most natural thing to do when you're trying to catch your breath is to rip apart your own deck and try to rebuild it because <laughs> there's nothing more um, relaxing than that, I am sure. Uh, many people in the audience can relate to. Um, but that's cool. I, I am thrilled, Katara, that you're able to join and to dive into a little bit of our Faces of Abortion tour, the tour that both you and I were speaking on, though we had zero overlap. You and Blaze were covering the eastern side. Myself and Quiet were covering the western side. But before we dive into all of the craziness and wildness and coolness of the summer, I want to give you maybe an opportunity to share a little bit about, I don't know, your, your origin story of sorts. Uh, Scott Klusendorf talks about how nobody really just like randomly decides to join the pro-life movement, that there's something of a summoning that goes into it. For some people, it's like a crazy road to Damascus kind of thing. For other people, it's just like a gradual trickling in. For other people, it's somewhere in the middle. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how you ended up being one of the speakers on the Face of Abortion Tour and part of the incredible team at CCBR? 
Well, how I ended up being one of the speakers feels a little bit like an unanswered question to me still, but <laughs> the way that I got involved in the pro-life movement uh, full-time was that um, back in 2016, uh, as a teenager, I was introduced to the abortion awareness project that we do in Florida, and um, I went along to that just as like a, you know, a one-week dip into the pro-life movement, and I found myself super inspired. I wanted to do it again the next year, um, but the next year, I realized that like, this is an ongoing issue. It's not just something you can do once a week and kind of walk away and live the rest of your life. Like there were, you know, little innocent children who were being killed every single day in my neighborhood, in my city, in my country. Um, so I, I started volunteering with Windsor Against Abortion. I actually started, uh, I helped to revive it. It had kind of died uh, a little while ago, but helped to revive it. Um, we just had a few people in Windsor um, volunteering and yeah, we did that for a bunch of years. Like I, I just volunteered for a long time, but the more that I volunteered, the more I just became convicted that this wasn't something I could do half-heartedly that like preborn children need people to work full-time. I was really inspired by the line. I think it was Greg Cunningham who said, um, there are more people working full-time to kill babies than there are working full-time to save them. And I was like, that's tragic. Like I just, if they're, if the, you know, um, if they need to be work people working full-time, why wouldn't that be me? So uh, I just kind of gradually worked toward eventually deciding to join CCBR. I did the internship last year and then joined staff right after. And then somehow I ended up touring across Canada this summer. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I love it. And and I, I think it's so cool when, when folks get involved super early, like, like you're still younger than I was when I first got involved in CCBR and here you've already done a, a whole tour and been down to Florida and done an internship, all that kind of stuff. I, I think it's fantastic. Um, and, and I got to ask, so the, the transition even from being an intern to being a staff, was that something that like halfway through the summer, you're like, oh my goodness, I really want to do this full time? Or was it something that like, even during the internship, you were kind of thinking, hey, you know what, like, this has been really cool. I can't wait till I can get back to whether it's a family business or whether it's um, college or something like that. And then you were kind of approached by a CCBR staff member who planted that seed. Was it you who approached CCBR or was it CCBR that kind of approached you with regards to working full time? So I think that for a lot of people, it is the internship that sparks that idea that like they hadn't really thought about working full time until they do it full time. Um, for me, it was kind of a plan that I already had laid out prior to even doing the internship because um, I was working full time for my family business in mm -hmm. Windsor and I kind of needed like to strategically plan that. Like I was like, you know, when you're working with a full time, when you're working with a family business, you only have so many people to run the operation. So if you're going to step out, you need to make sure things are covered. Um, before you leave. So I had to pretty, I had to plan that pretty well. Um, but I was, I was committed already before mm -hmm. I did the internship to working full time after. Gotcha. That, that's super cool. I know that for a lot of people, it was kind of like, there's still kind of that mission trip kind of vibe of the internship of like, that's really cool. I'm going to take the next step after Florida. And then, holy moly, like, this is actually an opportunity. I've learned a ton here. How do I I often talk about, I'm a big Narnia guy, like, how do I go back to living outside of the wardrobe? Um, and how do I make the wardrobe make sense with the rest of the real world that Narnia is within the the known universe, as it were? Uh, we don't need to get fully into that, but... Um, yep. <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah, moving moving the next step after that then. So you come on staff, um, you're working in the Eastern Outreach Department, you're working with Blaze Elaine, um, great friend and colleague of, of everybody here, and... 
at what point did the face of abortion tour kind of come on the radar? Like, was this, I, I guess in some ways it might've even been talked about during your internship, because this has been something that's been a little bit in the works for Seaspira for quite a while, but at what point did it really kind of register that not only this was going to happen, but that you were going to have a fairly prominent role in it? I feel like Blaze kind of introduced this to me slowly. <laughs> he was uh I didn't hear anything about it during the internship, at least okay. nothing as far as my involvement in it. Mm. Maybe I heard little bits and pieces about it existing, but um, it was like I joined staff in September. It was February when I started doing some public speaking. And prior to that, I'd been like just kind of slowly easing into um, doing a little bit of public speaking, doing some mock presentations for people or whatever. And then I started doing some real public speaking in February and Blaze started to drop hints about like, hey, you know, how would you feel about speaking on the tour like you know maybe coming along for some things whatever i thought maybe like once or twice through the whole thing but um that's i i feel like there were like a number of conversations in each conversation we had he was more like so do you want to like speak more so do you want to like be one of the two people who speaks across eastern canada i was like oh okay <laughs> yeah no. Gotcha. That that's cool, and and I feel like again that that's something. I, I know there are some people at CSPR who always had speaking kind of on their radar, or is like very explicit. I I apologize, Mike, if I'm putting my foot in my mouth, but I I, I know for a fact that that Stephanie knew that that Micah was going to be a phenomenal public speaker from the moment that she basically met her, and so um, I I think that that was fairly fairly evident that Micah was going to be a, a very prominent speaker at CCBR, even from her very early days. Apologies, Micah, if I'm, I'm off on those facts, I will correct them <laughs> if you correct me. Um, but but I, I, I feel like that's fairly, um, not not fairly normal, but um, <laughs> I, not, not the first time that I've heard that, that somebody kind of gradually growing into the public speaking realm. I, certainly that was for myself. I, I didn't necessarily know that I was going to be speaking very much. And then all of the speakers moved to Eastern Canada and they were like, okay, well, Cam, we need somebody in Western Canada to speak. And so <laughs> it kind of came up that way. Um, but so so with that then, as, as the hints are getting dropped and as I know that Jonathan and Blaze specifically did a lot of work developing, like what is the vision for Faces of Abortion Tour? What are we trying to accomplish? What are we trying to achieve both with regards to engaging abortion advocates on street level um, outreach projects, but also pro-lifers as we speak in churches and communities across the country? I guess as you were starting kind of walking into this, this is something that you'd done for a little bit. Did you see this as kind of just another, okay, we just need an excuse to get out and about. And I guess that we can talk about this. We need something to talk about. So we might as well talk about this. Or, or were you pretty excited about like, huh, focusing on the faces of preborn children is actually something substantially different than what we've done in the past. And I'm really actually intrigued, excited, um, that kind of thing around the idea of presenting a slightly different perspective, a slightly different angle, I suppose, on the abortion issue and the victims of abortion. What was kind of your thought process going into even tailoring your own presentations and, and the way that you wanted to deliver this message? So I was super excited about it. Um, I'm not actually a very visual person, so I find that um, I have a harder time connecting visually than most people I talk to. So um, most often when I give kind of uh, presentations on abortion victim photography and stuff, like I recognize the value of the photos and that they're the most effective tool that we have to change people's minds on abortion, but I, 
I would be in the minority of people who aren't as affected by them personally. Um, but what I found as we started to talk about the idea of the faces specifically was that I had already been thinking a little while ago um, about the concept of family resemblance and that um, like I, I knew someone who had um, whose sibling actually potentially two siblings had been um, aborted and what struck me one day as I was thinking about my friend was did those did those siblings look like him and um, recognizing that that family resemblance, that family resemblance exists between those of us who survived and it exists between those of us who didn't. And thinking about my own nieces and nephews and how right when they're born, you start to think like, oh, they look like so-and-so, they look like me, you know, uh, especially to see a niece and be like, she looks just like me, right? There's something, there's a personal connection there that goes deeper because they look like us personally. Um, so starting to think about family resemblance and how like even for me as a not very visual person, I connect with people through their faces on a level that I could not connect uh, with them in any other way. One of the lines in the, like what became my tour talk um, was that I said, uh, you know, their severed arms and legs may horrify us when we look at them, but their faces speak to us when we see them. And that's true for those of us who are more visual people and those of us who are not more visual people, because that's just built into us as human beings. Like our, our faces make us personal. Um, so I was very excited about the tour talk and talking about the faces specifically and being able to draw that out, being able to talk about my own experience, thinking about family resemblance, just get people to connect to those dots was very exciting and definitely paid off. That's so cool. And and this is what I'd love to dive into. In, in a moment, we'll talk a little bit about kind of what you saw as outcomes of having given the talk and, and interacting with not only audience members, but also people doing activism, using our new signs that are featuring more um, prominently the faces of abortion victims. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But I want to dive a little bit more into the content of your talks and kind of the signature component Um because I find that really, really cool. I, I got to admit, and and I, I don't know, Jonathan, if you're going to listen to this episode, but I got to be honest, for me going into this tour, it did feel like a little bit of a make work tour. It was kind of like, a, okay, you know what? Like, I don't actually know if this is going to hit people the way that Jonathan thinks that it's going to hit people. I don't actually know if people are going to respond that much differently to the abortion victim faces as they do to the rest of it. And I remember being somewhat skeptical until my first talk. So I, the first talk that I gave with Quana was in Regina and I like full blown burst into tears in the middle of my talk. And I had not expected that to happen, but it put words to an experience that I'd never put words to before connecting the defiance component with the actual, like you said, the faces, the, the who behind the what. For so long, I had largely thought of abortion as a what. What is happening to, to people like you and I? Like, and, and even that expression, people like you and I, was such a generic, like anybody sort of thing. And yet these videos and the content that we were conveying made it so much more personal, made it so much more individual and put the who into that conversation. And that really struck me in a different way. And like, I barely kept it together through that first talk. And I barely kept it together through all of the talks. And like, holy cow, I, I have never wept during a presentation before. And basically every single one of them hit me at the same point, talking about that connection between the who of abortion and the defiance that they demand. 
Um, that, that was kind of my experience. Let's dive a little bit further into your experience and kind of that element, whether it was um, that was kind of the only major um, resonance with you of that like family connection. Were there other elements of the content that, that really resonated with you in a new way or in a different way or profound way? And what was kind of your experience, not only processing this yourself, but sharing it to people in the audiences and, and that kind of thing? I feel like I resonated with every part of the talk mm. <laughs> and I cannot, I cannot do justice to the parts that Blaze delivered, um, mm. talking about former abortionists and the psychology of killing and what that does to a human being that's difficult to kill. Um, and that like, I, that the, that the face is key to kind of unlocking that resistance to killing that human beings innately have. Like he does an amazing job talking about that and I couldn't do justice to it. So I'll touch on it in two seconds there. But um, my parts, I, I resonated so hard with the whole idea of like, you know, when you look at the body of an abortion victim, it inspires an emotional connection, an emotional reaction. It's, it's disgusting. It, it's horrible. It's horrific. Like we have this emotional um, reaction to it. But like I said earlier, that the face um, connects with us in a different way. And we tried to draw that out with the concept of looking versus seeing, right? Just saying like, you know, if I look at you, I might move out of the way as we cross paths, but like it's seeing you that causes me to say hi. <laughs> um, we, we have, uh, yeah, like that, that looking at someone being just like purely seeing, purely, purely looking at them. Whereas truly seeing them is seeing something beyond and having an emotional connection with them. I found that so powerful. Um, because it cuts to exactly what you were talking about, that um, it's not just about a what. And there's there was a quote that we shared from Monica Miller, um, who kind who coined the term abortion victim photography, who, uh, um, oh, no, I'm forgetting the quote, but um, saying that when, when we gaze upon such an image, we're not merely looking at what abortion does, but at a someone who by that image takes his or her place among us, like, it is, it is that difference between looking and seeing is the difference between just seeing the horror of abortion and seeing the someone who that was done to. And that emotional connection that we form with the someone is what causes us to actually move beyond ourselves and to have some sense of responsibility for what happened to that person. Now it's no longer something we just want to turn away from, but it's someone that we need to respond to. It's a cry for help. Mm -hmm. That That is such an important way yeah the difference between seeing and looking and and I, I um i i know that you wrote an article about this and it'll be linked in the show notes the difference between seeing and looking and i think that's so profound and i think that that's something that if if members of the audience really think about that they can relate to right like the difference between really seeing somebody and simply looking at them and the times in their lives where they they've seen that the most profoundly and what it has elicited i i think even I, I don't know. I, I think naturally of like the day that I got married and how like the whole morning was like last minute scramble to do all this stuff. And I looked at a ton of people and then during the wedding, it. like I didn't see any of them. I didn't see any yeah. of them. And then having to really strike myself, like first seeing my wife during, during my um, marriage ceremony. And then uh, during the receiving line of actually seeing all of the people who were there, like, I feel like up until that point, I was just looking at all of the people who were, in the church for my wedding and yet during the receiving line actually seeing them and that profound sense of 
wow, all of these people care so deeply about me and the change that that makes. And I think that in many ways, it's a very similar kind of thing that I have looked at a tremendous number of abortion victims. I've been doing this full time for over 10 years now. I have looked at a ton of abortion victims. And yet I think that the talk for me even was seeing them in a whole new way. And I guess that kind of leads me to that that first question about the response of, so you traveled, you you did the, you were at almost all of the talks or all of the talks in Eastern Canada? Almost. Almost, almost. all of them. Okay. Blaze and I got a break for two of the. <laughs> two of them. <laughs> gotcha. Um, and so based on that, what was your experience or what did you kind of observe within the audience, their interaction? Now, I'm sure that some of them they were seeing for the first time. Some of them were attending a, a CSPR talk for the first time. Some of them may have come countless occasions before. What did you experience? What did you observe through the presentations as you were speaking to these audiences, as you were talking to people after the presentations? Did you find that there was a different tone that, that while this hit you and I differently than maybe other talks or other considerations, did you find that it was hitting other people in a different way too? Or what was your experience engaging with the audiences? It really felt to me like for those who had never seen a presentation before it was super powerful but those who had seen presentations before it was like it was their first time like it really did seem to hit people in a different way and one of the talks we did i think it was in ottawa someone who attended told us that she had seen many presentations before from ccbr and she'd done activism with us so she was fully acquainted <laughs> with all of um, our talking points and things but when she said, when she saw that talk, she said she thought it was the most reverent talk that she had ever seen from CCBR because it was, it, it hit all of the points that we normally hit that it shows the victims like the DC five video that we showed was horrible. Like there was, there was a, there was a noticeable palpable difference in the audience and the way that they were listening before the video and after the video every time. Um, so the, like the video hits everyone hard and, you know, that call to action and we need to respond to these victims was the same that we've always given. But she said that there was a new kind of reverence in focusing on the victim and their humanity and their dignity as a human being, which I thought was really cool. Yeah, that that is so cool. And, and obviously the exact goal of what we were hoping for in, in large part from the presentations, right? Of viewing this in a whole new way and hopefully leading many people to action. I, I'm sure that I'd love to dive into maybe a, a few anecdotes or even statistics from, from what you guys saw there. I know that, again, one of the most profound for us in, in Western Canada was in Regina, where the first talks that we gave, we the second talk we gave um, in Regina, we had, I don't know, just over 30 or so people come as a, a modest audience. Um, and yet, like you said, the, there's a palpable change in tone and the call to action was responded to better than anything else that we have ever seen that, that of those people attended, I think that two thirds of them rescheduled their weeks so that they could get one-on-one -on -one training from one of our re return interns. We had like 22 people come out door knocking with us from the presentation. Um, because of how profoundly the, the presentation resonated with them. I'm curious, were there either anecdotes or kind of larger scale outcomes that you saw that, that really impressed you with the response from some of the audiences that you were able to connect with? Absolutely. Um, I have a ton of super exciting stuff to share about really quick before I forget it. I would love to hear more about your 
tour on the Western side of things. I've hardly, I've heard hardly anything and I haven't read any of your notes. So you already have a heads up knowing a little bit more about mine than I do about yours. Um, but before I get to that, to respond to the question, um, in terms of uh, having a good response, it, I think the response was amazing. It was um, like, you know, anecdotally, we'd have lots of people come up and talk to us after and you could just see the impact that it had on people. But also um, one, of the, one of the key things we were trying to encourage people to do was join our crash course in Toronto. And we had the largest crash course in Toronto we've ever had um, with a, yeah, a, a very high response rate. Um, the age range in Toronto was, I believe, 14 to 85. It was so cool. And like the 85 year olds, like, you know what, we need abortion victim photography in my city. Like I'm going to start a group and like just the, um, the, the level of defiance that like really grabbing onto that and saying, this is something that we need to do and we can't afford not to do it was very real. Um, so yeah, largest crash course we've ever had. Um, there were also some really cool, interesting things like that I didn't expect. One thing that happened um, that I actually found out about at the crash course was one of the interns we had over the summer had been to a number of the tour talks. Um, and she told me on the day, on the second day of the crash course, I think that she had been out there having conversations doing choice chain. And like our tour talk is uh, tailored toward pro-lifers, right? Like we show the video and everything. So it would be, I, th I think it'd be convicting for pro-choices as well. But for the most part, we anticipate that the people who are listening to the talk are already pro-life and we're just trying to inspire them to greater levels of involvement in the pro-life movement. Um, but she started actually taking some of the tour talking points and integrating them in conversations on the streets. And she would, she told me she would have conversations where this happened a number of times where someone would get to the end of the conversation and they were almost ready to accept the pro-life position because they had heard everything and agreed with it. But at some point they were like, I just, I just can't like, just personally, I can't accept this, even though they agreed with all of the arguments. And at that point she just switched into kind of personal mode and started drawing out that family resemblance that I was talking about. And she would point out that those children look like someone. And if it was their child, that it would look like them, that he or she would have their, their eyes, their, you know, jaw structure, whatever. And she said that that was like a flip switch. Um, most of the times that she used that in conversation, people actually changed their minds and stopped supporting abortion because of some of the tour talking points. So I thought that was super cool. <laughs> that that That's phenomenal. And, and those are the stories that, that all of us love to hear of how, this perspective can help literally change people's minds. That's literally why we do this entire thing. And that's where we'll get in just a moment here talking about kind of the response from people street level, um, doing yeah. activism in communities for the first time and that kind of thing. I, I think that we've had some really, really cool experiences. And yeah, seeing how people are integrating these components I know that one of the one of the elements that Kwana, my colleague out here in Western Canada, that was giving talks with me, was really focusing on and doing such a great job of was um, in in a similar vein to the kind of family resemblance kind of thing. She was talking of some of the the facial expressions to kind of transcend that of like I don't know I, I'm a big Anne of Green Gables kind of fan and like how do you know that somebody's a soulmate kind of thing and and fast friends and that kind of stuff and like I find that so often it, it's a facial expression kind of thing like the twinkle in your eye the the goofy haircuts the this the that and, and that was something that Quina really dove into and again something that I saw people talking about during door knocking during choice chain that kind of thing of the facial expressions that we should see on children 
the joy, the curiosity, the uh, mischievousness, things like that, the expressions that we should be capturing with our pictures, whereas rather than that, we are capturing through these abortion victim images, the horrors, the cries of desperation, the urgency and sadness that we need to respond to. And, and interesting how people kind of really latched on to those aspects of what what expression should a child's face show and what expression are these children's faces showing and how do we um how do we change that and so that was one of the really cool experiences that we had out here based on one of the really cool kind of components that Kwana had built in uh which i thought was really really neat and really valuable um and and maybe let's dive into a little bit of the the street outreach and how so through this we were integrating new images on our signs that had a higher focus on the face the faces of not only the dc5 victims but faces in general of abortion victims to try to make this a little bit more personal and a little bit more human for passers-by and i'm curious um having done activism in in some new communities and and also some existing communities what kind of experiences stood out for you during your your travels across eastern canada here so the experiences that stood out to me were um like it was amazing how many people had ah uh, like a, a personal tie-in to the whole the whole focus of the tour that the faces of abortion victims that we were drawing out that pe that really did resonate with people um in some ways like one of the people that comes first to my mind when you ask about that and particularly because you're talking about street outreach is um, a young man i met in newfoundland so one thing that was very cool about the tour was um new groups starting in atlanta canada because we have a whole bunch of groups here in um ontario and you know, more and more and more groups popping up, but something that we really made um, headway with over the tour was new groups starting in Atlanta, Canada. So there's a group in Halifax now, a group in Newfoundland, um, a group potentially starting in uh, uh, in New Brunswick. So like just very cool to see all of that momentum going. And one of the people that um, is one of the one of the committed volunteers in Newfoundland told me that the reason he started getting involved in the first place uh, with pro-life activism was because of the birth of his son and that his son was being born um, just at the same time that news was blowing up all over the internet about baby Daniel in Montreal. And that contrast for him of seeing his own child's face while thinking about the face of baby Daniel and, and seeing that contrast was what motivated him um, to to get involved and then he resonated so hard with that idea um of the faces of the victims because that like that was what had done it for him right seeing his own child's face and then seeing these photos of children whose faces um you know just just photos of of dead children who have these these perfect little formed faces and some of them have these horrific expressions on them other ones don't some of them just look like you know peaceful but there's there's that humanity in all of those um he re he resonated with and pointed out that connection to me. That was, um, yeah, that was cool. 
That is so cool. And and people can read more about that story. Um, I'll, like I mentioned, I'll, I'll put your, your blog article in the show notes. I'll also post the yeah. story about baby Daniel so that those who may be unfamiliar with the child who was killed at 38 weeks gestation in Montreal earlier this year can read a little bit about that very sad and tragic story there. Um, yeah. and, and I think that's so cool. Uh, and uh, if, if I can ask, so the fellow's name, if I can, hopefully I can say it on air, you put it in the blog article, so I'm sure that it's fine. Yeah. Um, Jeremy, was he yeah. was he active in the pro-life movement before joining for Outreach in, with you guys, or, or is he relatively new to doing Outreach? He's totally new. He had So we had gone to Newfoundland just about a month before the tour. Okay. Um, now I'm forgetting. <laughs> um, but... We, we had been doing some trips um, to Atlanta, Canada and getting some, some momentum started around there around that time. So maybe we hadn't gone to Newfoundland. We might've just gone to Halifax, but in any case, we'd been up there getting some, uh, some things started, but he had around that same time just started, just wanted to join activism. And um, so the tour was one of the first things he came to. Gotcha. That, that is so cool. And, and so cool to see that kind of hunger for being able to do something and, and make a tangible difference. I, that was one of the coolest parts of our tour of we, we're really marketing this and, and trying to get um, pro-life leaders, existing leaders on board with the idea of how do we bolster their support, that, that they have been carrying the torch for so long that a lot of, I mean, I'm sure many of people in the audience have been involved in the pro-life movement for decades um, and have been holding that torch high and, and working so faithfully and yet so independently and so alone so often because other people just don't understand the urgency of the abortion issue and how this tour really provided a lot of inactive pro-lifers, people that kind of show up once a year, they, they go to local pro-life talk when it happens, but then they don't necessarily follow it up. One of the coolest things was seeing those people come out to this talk and then followed up by getting trained and coming out to do activism and having similar experiences to share like, hey, I think that I can build this part of my journey into saving babies and I want to prioritize getting better. And just, uh, I, I love door knocking for so many reasons. I, I love doing choice chain on street level, holding the signs, talk to people as they pass by. I love door knocking for so many reasons because in large part, you can bring a brand new person out there and they can listen to you have a conversation. And then the next door, they're trying to have the conversation themselves. Then as soon as that door closes, they're just hungry to learn like, what could I have done different? What could I have done better? How could I have carried that on? Thank you for, for jumping in when you did. But like, what am I supposed to say next? How do I how do I take this to the next step? Um, and so that that's so cool that Jeremy got involved and and is looking at ways to draw his own journey, his own story into supplementing the, the training tools that we have. Um, from from people on the street, I, I a question I wanted to bounce off you, and I know that I'm going to kind of blindside you with this, and so I'm going to give you a moment to percolate on it um, sure. while I kind of share my experience. I I'm sure you've heard like a million times the like you're just trying to get people to have an emotional response. You're just trying to shock people by abortion victim photography. You hear it a million times over, and I feel like for a really long time I used to be really defensive of like, no, this isn't super shocking. Like, like, we shouldn't need to be shocked by this. This is the reality. This is what's going on. We're not out here trying to make an emotional argument. We're trying to make a logical fact-based argument. And yet more and more in kind of the last year, and, and I would say culminating with this tour, I have been getting more comfortable with the skin of, we're trying to make a holistic argument. We are trying to engage you not only academically and logically, but yes, emotionally, we are trying to engage the whole person to help them understand that this is a personal issue, that this isn't 
a, a theoretical abstract idea. And so I don't need to run away from the attacks that this is just emotional. I, I need to run away from the idea with it just being emotional that it's more than just emotional, but I don't need to hide or, or rebut the idea that this is a somewhat emotional argument. I'm curious, I, I guess in some ways, just in general, how you have approached that kind of accusation that abortion victim photography is overly emotional and whether or not seeing the tour and the tour content of making this more human, making this more personal, did that um, influence the way that you respond to those kind of quote unquote accusations about the emotional nature of abortion victim photography? That is an interesting question. I think that the tour definitely impacted the way that I think about that in concept. I don't think that it's impacted my responses. Um, I think I've always kind of seen that that's a false dichotomy. <laughs> like it does. Uh, you know, it would be a problem if we were making an argument that if we were making an emotional argument that somehow contradicts the facts or that um, that we were trying to get people to leave aside the facts because of what your emotions might lead you to do. I think that would be bad. But the fact is that we approach it equally from both sides. We show the visual evidence of injustice, not just because the visual evidence is horrible to look at, but because it is actual visual evidence. Like if we want to be honest about what abortion is, we need to be honest about what abortion is. And abortion does cause an emotional reaction when you look at it. Um, I think that the, the tour has changed a couple of the ways that I think about it in terms of really seeing that distinction that, that Dr. Monica Miller made about just looking at what abortion does or looking at a personal someone that it's not about how gory the photo is, but it's about whether or not there is a personal connection and, and an ability for us to be able to look and see a victim of injustice when we see the photo, like photos that are really horrible and disgusting and gory, but don't look like a human being might cause some kind of discomfort, but they won't necessarily bring us to the right conclusion. But when we see a child who has had injustice done to him or her, then that calls out from within us the the correct response, right? Um, so that's made me think about that a little bit in that way. And you and I were talking a little bit earlier about my experience at U of T. You want me to share about that story? Because, okay, so so this was another way in which um, my, my perspective has shifted a little bit emotionally. And this is because, like I said earlier, I'm not a super visual person. So <laughs> I don't necessarily always make the same connection that everybody makes right off the bat. But I had this experience one time where I was at um, the University of Toronto. I'm doing a pro-life outreach project and it was like a normal day for me. I was working with some new volunteers, um, getting them all comfortable, you know, just kind of looking across the street, trying to, I was very much not focused on the activism. I was focused on the volunteers and trying to help them feel comfortable. Um, but I looked across the street at one point and I saw the I saw the sign that my friend was holding, which showed, um, I believe it was a 15 week old abortion victim. Now I'm second guessing myself whether it was 15 or 20, but um, somewhere around there. The sign showed a picture of her um, just with her head like laying inches apart from her body and her arm severed from her torso. I was looking at her limp legs and her torso just like torn apart like there was this fully formed child who just really looked to me like a baby. <laughs> like I just, it was like for the first time, 
I didn't just see like an abortion victim, but I saw a baby who had been torn apart. And she was so real looking to me that it felt like she might've been laying on the sidewalk instead of in a picture. And like how the, the reality of that moment, how hard that hit me, made me want to run across the street and yell at the guy who was standing there with a flag trying to cover the photo. He's trying to cover the photo because he supports abortion. And like, I understand on a normal day, I understand why you would want to cover the photo because if you support abortion, I understand why you wouldn't want people to see it. And I understand why you yourself wouldn't want to look at it. Um, but in that moment, I was like, I was not that rational. I just saw him covering the photo and I was like, what a horrible thing to do. Like, do you not see this child? I just wanted to run across the street and point and yell and be like, look, look, look. Like if he only saw, then he, like, if he only looked, then he would see, right. And then he wouldn't, um, then he wouldn't support abortion anymore. Cause how can you? Um, but it, I, I held myself in check cause I realized how that would look if I ran across the street and started yelling at him, he probably wouldn't take it so well. Um, and I, I had had the apologetics training. I knew you need to be civil. You need to have conversations. You need to meet people where they're at and walk people through it. Um, so I just stood where I was and I asked the next student walking by, what do you think about abortion? And kind of tried to, tried to act calm while I felt like I was going crazy inside. Cause I was like, how am I, how would I look crazy if I ran across the street and yelled? right? Like if that was a toddler, that would be a normal reaction for me to run across the street and yell at him, call him out for covering the injustice done to a child. Everyone would think that was a normal reaction, but somehow in this society, in this day and age, I would look like the crazy one if I tried to yell and tell him that's not an appropriate reaction. Um, and that really tied in with the whole section of the talk where um, we were just kind of, kind of drawing out that like, pro-lifers tend to have this, this recognition of the emotionalness of the argument. Like we recognize that innocent children are being killed. That's why we do this full time. It's not like we do it because this is our dream job, right? Um, we do it to protect innocent children. And there comes a point where when you do this day after day after day and people think you're being a little too invested or whatever, like, why can't you just, you know, work a normal job or do normal things with your life? There comes a point where you're just like you want to yell at everybody <laughs> like why don't you why don't you see how <laughs> can't why can't you tell um what's going on here so yeah i think that that whole emotional part of it to bring it back to the question like i really think it's a false dichotomy because when you look at the actual facts when you look at the things that are sort of unemotional about abortion it leads you to an emotional reaction because abortion just is a horrible injustice done to an innocent child. And if you aren't having an emotional reaction to that, then I would argue there's something wrong with you. Yeah, absolutely. It makes me think of, of my friend, Melanie, who came out to do some activism with us while we were in, um, in Vernon. And it, it had been a long day. And we had this group of counter protesters, a, a whole family, they literally brought their children out to, to protest in front of us. And they were going at Melanie for a long, long time. And though I, and, and Melanie snapped. Melanie snapped on them. She didn't say anything like super, super rude, but like she, she said it like it was of like, I am literally just trying to stop babies from getting ripped apart. Like, like, what is wrong with you? Why can't you see that this is not okay? And obviously that that's not what we train people to do. Um, and Melanie apologized <laughs> like 4 million times afterwards, 
but like, and, and I accepted her apology and, and we worked through it. And, and we, after we had wrapped up and we were debriefing, I, I thanked her for having that at the very least in the back of her mind, right? Like, I, I think that there needs to be that zeal, that righteous anger towards this horrible, horrifying injustice. And how do we... How do we allow our sadness about abortion to flow into anger? And how do we allow that anger to go more than just anger into defiance, into effectiveness, into um, the, the best way of changing hearts and minds? So again, I, I'm, I didn't tell Melanie that she should be doing that more often, but I also didn't tell her that she shouldn't feel that way. Because I think that it's absolutely appropriate to feel that way. Like you said, like uh, Jonathan has this great article that, again, I'll, I'll link in the show notes. And I know that you're, you're alluding to it as well called We the Screamers and how what, what is crazier? The fact that we look at this injustice and we're, we put aside everything to try to save these preborn babies or the fact that many other people see this injustice and know this injustice, understand the injustice and turn away and go back to their normal lives. What is crazier? What is really crazier to say that I'm yeah. looking at the fact that these children are being slaughtered and how can I not respond this way? And, and I think that's a poignant thing to leave with so many people, maybe many of those in our audience today, that how do we not respond with the urgency and the desperation that um, is necessary? How can we reasonably turn away and not be affected? by these very real who, um, the, the very personal victims of abortion and the very horrifying what that has happened to them, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I loved um, one point that Blaze brought up toward the end of the talk was kind of the three reactions that we can have to seeing the victims of abortion and particularly their faces once we, once we not only look at them but truly see them and actually form a personal connection and actually say, hang on, this is like an, an actual innocent child who was killed. What now is my responsibility toward her? I can do one of three things. I can respond with indifference and just forget that I ever saw it and sever that connection that I just made. Or I could respond with despair and just say like, this is so horrible and it's never gonna get better and what can we even do? And the world is going to hell in a handbasket. Or we can respond with defiance. And defiance I think is the only empowering one. <laughs> defiance says like, yes, this is as tragic as it looks. Yes, I can look into the face of this child and not turn away. Like I can actually form that connection, recognize what's going on here, be honest with myself and with other people about what's going on but then I can turn that into action to make sure that there are more survivors than victims, that we can um, actually save children from experiencing the horror of that and make it so that the number of faces that we have to confront are less. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and how each of the three of those options all have positive feedback loops in that the more indifferent you feel, uh, like indifference leads to greater indifference despair leads to greater despair and mm -hmm. defiance leads to greater defiance and so knowing that you are fueling your your own kind of self-fulfilling prophecy by choosing which road you're going to go down 
if, if you choose to go down the indifference road, you're simply going to become more and more indifferent towards everything around you. We, we've both spoken to people at activism who have taken that approach of indifference and apathy, and they just stop caring about anything because that's the only way to live. We've talked to people who have gone down that despair route and how that despair leads them towards constant despair because of the brokenness of our culture. And then hopefully we've inspired people to choose more predominantly and more frequently that road of defiance that, that again, builds upon itself. And I guess as we start wrapping up here, in mind of that defiance and and the incredible stories that that you shared about groups getting started and people coming to the Toronto Crash Course, uh, I hope that some of the people listening to this episode did come to those talks and are maybe part of those groups. And I guess what kind of words of encouragement would you offer them at this stage, because I feel like for a lot of people, that initial burst of, you know what, Katura, you are right. I just listened to your presentation. Let's get out there. Let's join shoulder to shoulder. Let's, let's get knee deep in this culture war. Let's get fired up. And then a couple months, couple weeks, couple days at times even later, that is met with adversity. It's met with other opportunities. It's met with other stuff. I guess what kind of words of encouragement would you offer people that have been invigorated and have been maybe a, a to um, reference scripture, if, if we can do that, of, of like the, the sprout that is shooting up quickly to make sure that we are not becoming those that that are planted in shallow soil that spring up quickly and wither and fade how do we ensure that we are planted in in good soil and and maintain this momentum going forward and that we don't burn ourselves out a month after we listen to a talk and we go back to that road of indifference or road of despair what would you say to them now a month or two after they heard the initial talk to keep them as active as passionate as engaged as they were a month or two ago that's a great question. I think, um, I think it's about being realistic mm. about every aspect of this. So it's about being realistic about your own expectations, your own ability and, and capability. And it's also about being realistic about how urgent the need is. So um, what I think of is when I first got involved in 2016, 2017, with the abortion awareness project, I was so on fire and like, this is the most important issue and everyone who isn't doing this full time is just wasting their time. And <laughs> like everyone needs to be, you know, fully in this. Um, and one thing that I struggled with a lot was abortion was just on my mind 24 seven. Like as I went to sleep and as I woke up in the morning, I was thinking about abortion. I had just gone through the apologetics training. So every scenario that I talked with someone about in life, I would turn into an analogy. I'd be like, oh, I could, you know, bring this up in a choice conversation. We could lead it back to abortion this way. But um, it was unhealthy. There was a point where I was just, I was thinking about abortion constantly. And I was like, death is just on my mind all the time. And it's really, really hard. And I'm not made to be able to sustain that kind of thought life. Um, so whether it's happening in your thought life or whether you're over committing, like, you know, I need to be at every activism project, like I need to be going seven days a week and every, you know, long days, whatever, like just pushing, pushing, pushing. Um, don't do that either. Like just recognize your limits and um, figure out where you need a rest and need to take a break and recognize that you aren't the pro-life movement on your own. We're a movement because we're a whole group of people. We all need each other. Um, but then secondly, don't forget the need. 
like don't allow yourself to think that just because you don't have the capacity to be the entire pro-life movement that you shouldn't be a part of it and these children really do need you there are really nearly 300 children who are being killed every single day so i think that needs to uh needs to encourage us and, and inspire us to keep going and um keep moving ahead yeah just keep going Love it. Love it. It makes me think of the quote from uh, social activist Helen Keller um, that we used to share all the time. I don't know how often it gets shared at presentations anymore, but but Helen Keller said, um, I am only one, but I am still one. I cannot do everything, but still I can do something. And because I cannot do everything, I will not refuse to do the something that I can do. Let's not evaluate whether or not we can um, overcome this by ourselves, because the answer is inevitably no, like you said. However, what can we do? I, I think that Blaze has spoken so valuably about the importance of um, a theory of change. And I think that the value of connecting a value, uh, a theory of change with a theory of action, what needs to happen, but also what can happen? What do I need to do and what can I do? And how do I connect the two of them? How do I not spend the rest of my life um, like the, the crazy guy with the, the bulletin board with strings attached everywhere? How do I go out and do something meaningful without spending all of my time in the ivory tower or in the bunker, the war room, whatever? How do I marry together a theory of action with a theory of change to ensure that we are moving? Not only are we moving, but we're moving in the right direction. I think that theory of change gives us direction. Theory of action gives us movement in many ways. And so... Um, I think that bringing those two together. And so I, I think that's profound. I, Katera, I'm very thankful that you've taken the, the time to join me here on the show. Um, I, I hope to, to have you on the show a number of other times um, going forward. Anything that I'm missing, anything that I've forgotten, anything that, that you think that, that we should be sharing before we, we sign off for the day? Honestly, I feel like you covered everything. I can Love. think of anything else. <laughs> gotcha. Love. The last thing, last thing that I'll mention um, that I think dovetails very well with what you had said as well about knowing what we can do is the importance of community. The community that, mm -hmm. that there is going to be an element of isolation and, and that's where we're going to be attacked so often, not only by the people and, and human forces of our world, but, but those forces outside of our world sort of thing as well. They're going to attack us in isolation. And I think of how valuable that continued community really is to have that support to have that um camaraderie and I, I look at things even like the toronto crash course and how valuable it is not only as a training opportunity but also as a community opportunity that that you might have a lot of the skills the tools that you need to have effective conversations but you might uh, like i i i will throw out there the fact that i don't think anyone can do this on their own I don't think that anybody equipped with all the tools and skills can do this solo and, and persevere without either becoming bitter and hardened and resentful or else falling into complete despondency. And so let's look for opportunities to come together as a community. Let, let's bolster each other up. Let's share our stories and testimonies together. That can be as something as benign as a comment section on a YouTube video such as this, um, or that can be something as active as participating in a pro-life event that you know what? Sure, you might, you might know everything that's going to get said at a crash course, at a boot camp, at a week of action, that kind of thing. You might have heard it all before, but it's not just about what you hear, but also what you experience doing something. And so don't rule out a Toronto crash course. Don't rule out a Winnipeg boot camp or something like that because you've heard much of it before. 
not only are we at CSPR always trying to engage the culture that lies before us, not the, the culture that was in front of us 10 years ago, but the culture that's in front of us right now. And so there are constant developments um, to the training, but also I can't emphasize enough the importance of community when it comes to perseverance within this culture war. And so Amen. thanks again, Katura, for, for being on. Looking forward to seeing you at the staff retreat coming up here in a couple of weeks um, and looking forward to chatting more podcast stuff going forward. So thanks yeah, a ton. Thanks, Kim. All right, folks, that was Katura Domain. She is the um, Eastern Executive Assistant in the Eastern Outreach Department. She works with my colleague Blaze all the time, along with all of our other incredible colleagues out in Eastern Canada, based out of the Toronto area. I'm so glad that she had such a great experience on the Faces of Abortion tour. And, and I'm thankful that many of you, I hope, were able to join in for some of those tour talks. Um, if you weren't able to, I know there are still a few happening. I will be giving a few talks um, here in Western Canada for communities that we weren't able to hit during the summer. Um, so do check out our, our website um, and thekilling.ca slash tour um, that you can learn a little bit more. There's going to be an awful lot of stuff in the show notes below as well. We're going to have Katur's article that she talks about the five people um, that um, resonated with her during her experience on um, the new abortion, uh, not the new abortion caravan, the phase of abortion tour, um, as well as um, an article about baby Daniel, um, child who was tragically killed at 38 weeks gestation um, in Montreal earlier this year, as well as an article by Jonathan Van Maren called We the, St we the Screamers and um, an episode that Couture re recently did um, with our friend in the movement, Mark Harrington. So a lot of stuff in the show notes. If you could do a huge favor to the show, if you could like and subscribe, rate the show um, on not only your favorite podcatcher, but also on YouTube. We're making a big push to get to a thousand subscribers on YouTube. And the reason why YouTube is so important is because for most podcatchers, it's really difficult to see the following. And so when I'm trying to get new guests on the show, um, especially higher profile guests, one of the easiest ways for them to see whether or not this show is worth their time is to simply go to YouTube. What kind of following does this show have? What kind of engagement does it get? All that kind of thing. And I know this is primarily a pod um, platform kind of thing that, that a lot of you are listening to the show on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on other platforms, whether you're a super hitch, a hipster or, or a mainstream person. If you could do me a huge favor and like and subscribe, not only on your podcatcher, but also on YouTube, that allows me to have greater weight going to guests that I'd love to have on the show um, because sometimes they get turned down being like, sorry, this person doesn't have availability this month. And, and at times it's because they know that the show is still relatively small fish when it comes to um, opportunity that, that they're not reaching a massive audience while doing this. And so they need to prioritize your time, their time elsewhere. So if you can help me grow on YouTube in particular, if you can like, like and subscribe to the channel, like the videos, all that kind of thing, Maybe even listen to the videos on there as well. There's some videos that have um, some good um, facial expressions and content from some of our favorite guests as well. Please do that. That all being said, want to super appreciate you for sticking with the show. I know that it was a pretty dry summer. And so I'm excited about what the fall is going to have and, and have coming up. And so I hope that you're along for the ride there. So thanks a ton. May God bless you abundantly wherever you're at, however many hours are left in your day. Thanks a ton.